AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Uh. Check it out now. Uh, it's the Beating the Book yeah. podcast, Gil Alexander. During this coronavirus pandemic, it gives me an opportunity to do some shows that I don't otherwise get to do during a full sports calendar. Never enough time to do these random shows, but today I get that chance. And it's a show I've always wanted to do, the rise and fall of the baseball card industry. I think it's a uh, story that hasn't been fleshed out nearly enough for a generation of folks who used to collect as kids like myself and really was our first entree into associating sports with money in the first place. It's an amazing story and has some real correlations to sports betting. We get into it with Las Vegas Chris, who has seen it all on all sides of the baseball card industry on today's Beating the Book podcast. Enjoy. It's a numbers game with your host, Gil Alexander. You want those idiots who believe in analytics? Good Monday morning to you. It is Gil Alexander right here on VEASAN, the Sports Betting Network, Sirius XM Channel 204, VEASAN.com, the VEASAN app, Fubo, Sling, Game Plus on down the line. Uh, but today, I want to do something uh, a little different. And, you know, while sports are going on, when it's just, when we're on a hamster wheel of sports, I think to myself sometimes, you know, one day I'd like to do a show on this subject or one day I'd like to do a show on another subject, uh, but you never get a chance to do it when sports are in, in full bore mode. Uh, but there's no better time to do it right now. And today, uh, this was promised last week. I'm going to do a show on the rise and fall of the baseball card industry. And you say to yourself, baseball cards, um, the sports betting tie in is what? Well, actually, for many of us and many listening to the show, uh, this was our first experience in life tying sports into money. 
Um, we'll get into some of that, the similarities of, uh, of the markets and what kind of betters might have sprung from the baseball card days. But really, I think not only is there a, is there a betting tie-in, it's just an amazing story. Uh, many of us grew up in a time where baseball cards were everything we cared about as kids. Uh, it was a booming industry. And then it all collapsed. And I don't think it's a story that's been told enough. And to help us along with that today and to really give us insight is a gentleman who has been on all kinds of the baseball card industry, um, retail, manufacturing, um, distribution, just all different kinds of the business. It's our old friend, Las Vegas, Chris. Good morning to you, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Um, Can you hear me? I'm having internet connection problems. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I guess I'm off my headset here, uh, so but you can hear me anyway. Yeah, I can hear you okay. Let, let, me, let me just give your uh, street cred as a better, first of all, for those who have not uh, had you, uh, heard you on the show before. Uh, Chris is a very successful uh, professional better in Las Vegas. He won the 2016 College Football Station Casino's Last Man Standing Contest, defeating uh, over 2,500 competitors, taking in $52,000 at that time. Um, also won the win eliminator contest, $100,000 contest back in the day, the palms contest in 2011 stations, casino, last man standing college football contest. Uh, as we mentioned in 2016, uh, this year, this past year, uh, finished 20th and 31st, uh, using different picks in his two entries in the circuit contest. Um, four out of 20 of the remaining last man standing stations, um, at Stations Casino this year, had four of the remaining 20 uh, entries. Four of them were his, but flamed out. Thankfully, uh, he uh, was able to hedge his way out of that. Uh, it is Gil Alexander. It is Las Vegas Chris on a numbers game right here at Beeson, the Sports Betting Network. Chris, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm having no problem hearing you, but uh, I'm, I'm coming in and out uh, with my inferior technology. So uh, Okay, uh, well, we, we got you here then. Okay, so that's... Just for those who, who who weren't familiar with you, I just wanted to give you your, give them your betting background because you are a very successful uh, pro better. We'll get into some of that later. But as far as your baseball card history, let's start there before we get into the rise and the fall of the industry. How did you get into the industry in the first place? You know, I was uh, I was looking for something to uh, just fill time, like a productive hobby, so to speak, because it was the uh, after college uh, times, and I really hadn't picked a career. And uh, I started, uh, I had a friend that actually, uh, hilariously enough, uh, got himself into gambling trouble and was selling his baseball cards from way back when. So I started going to some shows with him as he was liquidating his his sets from the 60s and 70s. And I'm, and I'm like, holy cow, you know, this stuff's worth a fortune. And it just happened to be the era where there was a huge boom back in uh, 87, 88. And realistically, you, you could do no wrong. You know, anything that you bought was going to make money. So I, I, I basically just started to absorb as much information as I could. And, uh, um, you know, the trick it, it kind of is similar to gambling in the old days where you are searching, like in the old days where you're searching for those road lines, you're searching for those rogue deals of, of great deals to buy cards because you would find out, oh, I can sell this uh, over here uh, for this price. So you're you're going to different uh, other shows or different stores around or you're driving around to different states and you're, 
and you're chasing down uh, Barry Sanders in, in uh, you know, uh, Iowa, who nobody cares about, and you're selling them for triple your money in Detroit. So, you know, that's how it initially started. And uh, that evolved uh, over time into actually getting a store. Um, started off with a really small store, uh, 450 square feet, I think it was. Really small. And, uh, um, that evolved into uh, you know, a store that's triple that size. We started a, a wholesale company that we were distributing all around the nation. Uh, we would go to national shows. Um, we actually got to the we, we uh, opened uh, another store afterward and uh, um, got pretty big for a long period of time. What years were this, Chris? That was uh, I, I got in I think in eighty seven or eighty eight and I opened the store in ninety two and had uh, stores in my retail business. Uh, and my offices until I think about 2003 or 2004. So you really saw the boom and the bust. You saw it all from, uh, from the beginning. You, you really rode the curve up and, and down. Um, let me just start with, uh, with sort of reflecting where most of us were. Most of us were collectors back in those days. Uh, in the 80s and maybe into the early 90s when we were either uh, teenagers or kids and then teenagers. And um, that was kind of, I think most of the listeners of this show, that's their relationship to, to baseball cards. I was obsessed. I mean, absolutely obsessed. Nothing in the world mattered more to me uh, as a kid. So my, my calendar year was sort of obsession with the Redskins, uh, obsession with music. Oh, now it's summertime. I'm collecting baseball cards as I was when I was a kid. Right. I mean, that was my joys in life. And I think a lot of people have have similar um, similar sort of likes and, and obsessions when when they were kids, as as, uh, as far as those listening to this network and this show. And so for us, it started as something, you know, very cliche. We got cards, let's say, from the neighbor who was going to throw them out or whatever it was. I, I got no more joy than anything in life than my mom. When she went to the grocery store, I would always say to her, oh, but don't forget to buy you know, baseball cards for me. If you could, just those little three packs of tops with the gum, with the cardboard gum in it. And by the way, uh, Tops really a, a gum company that, that happened to sell cards with it as a marketing tool. And so this was the, this was the innocence of it. And then uh, it became with Beckett Price Guides, it became a sort of our introduction to value or perceived value, or in the case of baseball cards, as it turned out, a lot of speculative uh, pricing. Before we get into all that, tell me about um, the actual production of the cards. In other words, everything in Beckett Price Guides looked great. Uh, 87, I used to collect all these Barry Bonds Fleer rookie cards. I was obsessed with Barry Bonds even then. And I was like, oh man, look what the price is in the Beckett price guide. These are going to be so valuable in the future. But wasn't this simply a case of supply and demand where the reason that the industry, you know, we talk about baseball cards as something that fathers and sons could share. Not my father, he wasn't from this country, but generally speaking, the American story is fathers and sons could share baseball cards. But really, it was the mothers who threw them out in previous generations who created this market of perceived value. And so when we were kids and we're thinking, oh, these are going to be valuable 30 years moving forward, just like the cards 30 years ago were valuable. That's where it all kind of turned, didn't it? 
Well, it, 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 it's similar to what people do with the point spreads nowadays. But getting back to your point about having a passion for it, uh, I never closed my store in 12 years when I had it. We were open 365 every Christmas, every Thanksgiving. I personally didn't take days off for years, like three years straight. Gambling, at least you have two days off during the All-Star break. Uh, <laughs> That's so, right. Uh, and, and as I was mentioning to you, I, I, have a, I have dreams a couple times a year that I'm still working in that store uh, almost you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And, and, and it's like I worked the whole store. But as you said, it, you know, you've got the price guides uh, for for the cards and you get that introduction to it is thinking, oh, boy, that's the Bible. And I'm making all this money when the reality of it is it's sort of like when you're, you know, these, these guys betting a lineup uh, so that they can bet it back down later on. You know, that's basically what the baseball card industry is, is trying to, you know, shove lines up on certain things uh uh you know similarly to, to to betting you know there were people in the card industry where we you know you could get together and you knew that uh you were going to run up these certain cards or run up these certain products because you knew what the print run was or you knew how you know who had the majority of a certain product or and you had a position in it so the manipulation was uh you know Really similar and really interesting, uh, and unfortunately, probably wasn't good for a lot of people uh, that went on the inside. So I guess what I'm getting at, because you just used the word manipulation, I guess the, the whole thing about this is, for those of us who were so innocent and loved it as a collectible, and by the way, I still have them, my parents have them in D.C., most of my valuable cards, I still cherish them, right? It's not like I don't still love them, because they bring back memories of my of my childhood. But the... The notion that this was something that would, you know, pay for our college, let's say, many years hence, the whole thing was kind of a scam, wasn't it? In other words, let's take Beckett. The Beckett, uh, for those who don't know, Beckett was uh, Jim Beckett who had the uh, the price guide. At their peak, they sold a million copies of their magazine a month, Chris, a million of them. Um, which is just staggering to think about uh, back in the day. So, you know, I was making the I was making the comparison to how we viewed cards in terms of how valuable they were going to be then versus what then happened in the subsequent years. Talking about into the '90s, the the pinnacle of baseball card collecting in terms of individual cards. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong. The T206 Honus Wagner tobacco card is, is considered the most valuable card there is. There's only uh, a couple handfuls of them uh, known to exist. Then there's the 1952 Rookie Mickey Mantle cards, uh, which was from Topps, either first or second set. I believe second set in the, in the early 50s. 50s. The 1950s is when the industry started to boom. Uh, by the way, I don't know why. Brent said this on the air with me, so I don't feel like I'm speaking out of turn when I say this. Brent Musburger owns two 1952 Mickey Mantles. And apparently it's a point of contention with he and his brother, Todd, that they're going to have to work out at some point as to the ownership of those cards. Uh, but it was, it was the T206 Honus Wagner. It was the 1952 Mickey Mantle. And then the third most important baseball card in history uh, is considered to be the 1989 upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. card which was the number one card in terms of its order in the set, was the one card 
uh, where someone who worked for Upper Deck in 88, you know, knew that he was going to probably get called up to the big leagues the next year. And this is where things went awry. And you tell me your knowledge of this, because this was considered at the time to be a hugely uh, valuable card. First of all, you could, if it's the number one card, oh man, you can't get it in good condition, right? That was a thing at the time. Um, but that, you know, they went from, from whatever the cost of a, of a card in a, in a set was to something that was worth 25 bucks, then a hundred bucks and then 400 bucks. But really, can't we say that the beginning of the end was that card specifically? Um, well, that was the, the beginning of everything that was good for years, though. You know, the problem was that uh, that's what got everybody into the industry when Upper Deck first started. Uh, you know, they had the hologram on the card. The card stock was just so much better. Uh, more colorful. They were packaging their sets up nicer. The packaging uh, foil was just nice. And, you know, similar to Beanie Babies, it was tough to get. You know, not everybody could order it. Uh, you know, it took me, it, like, if you, you couldn't just open up a card shop and, and get an Upper Deck account. So um, they were limited production, and that actually lasted, you know, for years. But uh, I think what you're, you're trying to touch on is, um, you know, you got to watch what I, you know, I got to watch what I say, but uh, there's, it seems like uh, there were bushels and bushels and bushel, bushels of Ken Griffey juniors that would uh, appear uh, later on in the years. And uh, yes. all of a sudden those hard to find 1989 upper deck factory sets uh, all of a sudden were easier to find. And uh, um, so that's what you're touching on. And, and, and those kinds of shenanigans you know, I was privy to for years. Uh, it was, it just went all over the place. Uh, so yeah, it, it was bad for people because people, you know, if they would have held those production numbers, it would have held value pretty well. Right. If they had. So by the way, let me just, we're, we're in the business of sort of recommending documentaries here on this show and all kinds of different subjects. Um, but a baseball card documentary that is a really interesting watch is something called Jack of All Trades, which is told through the perspective of the son of the former owner of the Sluggers baseball card shop uh, in Toronto. And he was Canada's leading card salesman. It's a whole story, and it really does sort of talk about the evolution of the card industry from that perspective. But one of the things that they talked about during uh, or in that documentary is what I was getting at, because you're right. The, the interest in the Ken Griffey Jr. card, I think about it, there was 10,000, Chris, there were 10,000 baseball card shops around the United States back in the early 80s, excuse me, the late 80s and the uh, early 90s. Tops had been the only baseball card company uh, for decades. Don Russ and Fleer, I think, had a set in the early 80s or a couple sets, but then that, that went away. It was not until the late 80s were cards proliferated uh, beyond Tops, Don Russ and Fleer. Uh, Upper Deck shows up in 89. So at first, that Griffey card, because Upper Deck came in, and Upper Deck started as a shop in in, Los, in Southern California, and they're like, we're going to make these beautiful cards. Griffey became this this thing that through a combination of marketing and, and beauty and just his popularity became a huge thing. But what you touched on is really the thing that I was getting at, which is, okay, once it did become a big thing, Upper Deck realized 
literally, if you were to believe it, um, and I think there's a lot of proof about this when you talk to people in the know, they decided, oh, we can literally print money. At least that was their attitude. And so something that was so, so rare, supposedly, uh, as the Griffey one card in 89, they would print those. The baseball cards, as you know, came on these 10 by 10 prints of 100 cards on one sheet. They would start printing complete 100 sheets with nothing but the Griffey card. And there's some spec. There was one story told in that movie about someone seeing a box of someone just having 5,000 of them. So it's just sheer greed, isn't it? Like that's what I mean. There, you, you you'll talk about it from all angles, but that's one of the biggest things as to why this all turned sheer greed and gaming the market. Well, yeah, and and that's absolutely true. I I, I per, you know there were times. Uh, when I was in the business that I would have 5,000 count boxes full of uh, hard to find insert cards. And uh, it, it just seemed there were leaks at every manufacturer at some point, uh, because as you said, they're printing money. And uh, I, I actually was a paid consultant with, I think every card manufacturer at some point uh, other than upper deck, but uh, you know, they were buried themselves in these licensing fees the licensing fees would just go higher and higher each and every year and uh, and they had no choice but to print and print and print so um the word backdoor seemed to be you know common knowledge and common terminology in the industry you know by the time uh you know right around the baseball strike era and you have all kinds of uh, stories to tell us about uh, different other sides of the business where shenanigans were going on. But this is, I mean, this is really where now, you know, I have this old collection of baseball cards, a whole bunch of people do. And we thought when we were adults, you know, back then we thought by this time we would look at something like the Beckett price guide, by the way, the Beckett price guide still exists um, today, although they're not nearly selling a thousand uh, copies per month. Um, they're not worth a damn. We'll get into all that. Coming back with Las Vegas Gris, Jimmy Vaccaro to come as well on a numbers game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Don't forget, you can get a taste of the basketball action we've all been missing just by entering BetMGM's free-to-play $20,000 bracket challenge. Yep, brackets. Some of pro basketball's biggest stars competing in the NBA 2K Players Tournament, a single elimination esports exhibition that'll be televised nationwide. So if you're ready to have some fun while we wait for the real thing, try to pick the best bracket for a chance at 20,000 United States dollars. Just log into your account or sign up for the BetMGM app to get started. Then make your free bracket picks by April 5th. That's by today. Today's the deadline for a chance to take home the big cash prize. Which one of pro basketball's 16 big names will you get behind as they take over the court with the control sticks? The action may be simulated, but the BetMGM Sports $20,000 bracket challenge is definitely real. Got to be 21 or older. Got to be in New Jersey. Restrictions apply. Visit BetMGM for the full list of terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Gil Alexander. This is a numbers game right here at VEASAN. Um, Jimmy Vaccaro on to talk Leonard Hagler later in the show. The uh, 32nd, no, 33rd, pardon me, 33-year anniversary of uh, Leonard Hagler. He'll talk to us about that. We get tweets, by the way, at Beating the Book uh, as we do our baseball card show today, the rise and the fall of the baseball card industry with Las Vegas Chris. Uh, Crane Pool and a whole bunch of others showing their baseball card collections. 
by picture here. Uh, Jeffrey Lawson, you tang forever. Uh, uh, the 1989 Upper Deck Griffey Jr. card. Now I'm angry again. Uh, Gary Kincaid won, Chris. This is a question for you. Can you and Chris touch on the values of cards in, I'm assuming by b-ball, he means basketball and football in the 50s and 60s? Are those cards worth anything? Well, you know, when, when we first started when we first started uh, seeing the rise in the industry back uh, in 88, 89, football and basketball cards were, were worthless until David Robinson came around and they came out with hoops and uh, hoops became very popular and uh, uh, football cards were the last one to ever get any sort of play. So it was basketball uh, became very popular. People started chasing the Michael Jordan rookies, 86, 87, Flair basketball. And then uh, the, the real coup, and, and, I, and I'm good friends with the guy that did this, uh, the star basketball started to get run up. And, and that was a brilliant move because that had really, really low productions. And they were very knowledgeable on, on where the entire product was. So they basically controlled it. They had a relationship with Beckett, and uh, they ran that up and did quite well on that. And, and then after, uh, after basketball, it finally went to football. But football never really caught on as much. But to answer specifically, I think it really gets down to the grading of cards back in the 50s and 60s. If you have gem mint cards, you're, you're talking big bucks. Uh, I know somebody at Costum, I think uh, – I think he's got a football set that's all PSA nines or tens, and uh, uh, it's you know well over a hundred thousand dollars. So it really just depends on the quality because that stuff is legitimately rare, and it's it's harder to counterfeit also. Well, that that's a whole other thing you touch on there, which has changed since since our childhoods. Which is you know we would look at a car and our definition of a, of what was mint or excellent or very good when we were kids is a whole different story than what is considered that, uh, now by, you know, much more formal grading. Um, so that's a whole nother layer to the whole thing, uh, that's changed. But, you know, I mean, just to, just to give a sense and I'll just tell a, a personal story. When I was a kid, uh, me and my best friend would, would trade cards and one day, and we're all familiar with being in trades, uh, where we fleeced somebody or get where we, or they got the best of us. Anyways, my, my best friend, I ended up trading for a 1975 rookie George Brett and I gave him crap in the trade. And then the Beckett price guide came out. We found out very quickly that I had completely fleeced him. And so for many years, I, and I swear this is, I'm not exaggerating this for many years. And I wouldn't think about it every day, but every so often when I'd be talking to my friend, I'd be thinking to myself, wow, I really fleeced him out of that 75 rookie George bread. And at the time it was priced at like 250 bucks, right. Or like, you know, 300 bucks, whatever a rookie George Brett was from 1975 tops. So for his 50th birthday, I ended up buying him a 1975 George Brett so that I could sort of make amends. It was sort of our lives coming full circle. It cost me less than 20 bucks. Like that's how, that's how unbelievably wrong, not wrong, but how the, the industry itself has crashed, at least in terms of, again, what the perceived market value was then uh, versus what it is now. We'll talk with Las Vegas Chris about uh, how this relates to sports betting markets. What kind of sports bettors came out of an obsession with baseball cards as kids and an FBI sting operation that Chris was involved in? 
That's right. It gets that serious. The rise and fall of baseball cards right here on a special edition of a numbers game right here at VEASAN, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. Back on A Numbers Game right here at Visa, the Sports Betting Network, Sirius XM Channel 204. It's Gil Alexander, Las Vegas Chris, multiple Las Vegas sports handicapping champion uh, with us to talk about his uh, years of the baseball card industry, the rise and fall of the industry, because I just don't think enough has been made of that. So many of us grew up on cards, and uh, what better time to talk about it than in these strange times where we have some... Uh, some time to spend. Let me ask you this, Chris. Uh, there were often, there was often promotions in baseball card collecting, as I recall, where, and this was more of a nineties. I think it was more of a nineties thing than an eighties thing, but there was always like, okay, um, there's a, you know, the Jose Canseco card or whatever the card du jour was, whatever the flavor of the month was, uh, or the, uh, to be more accurate, the flavor of that set, like the most valuable card in this set, it's somewhere in these packs. Was that all bull too? In other words, were masses and masses of tens and thousands of, of cards produced with the hope for all these little kids hoping to find this one valuable card? And was it all gamed against us anyway? Well, it, I believe that there was a lot of hanky-panky for years, and that's what led to uh, having to have numbered cards because they would say, oh, this card is so rare, you can't find it, and there'd be tons of them that would come up from, you know, they'd get funneled through dealers that had connections to the manufacturers and sometimes the printers. But the, the only way you knew that something it got to the point. The only way you know anything's limited is if it's numbered. If it's not numbered, you just can't trust it. A printer can print it. Um, you can't trust the manufacturer. Uh, you just can't verify how many of an item there are. So that's what was hurting the industry. Uh, and when they started numbering the cards, uh, that rejuvenated it a little bit. But then it got to the point where they they were doing all these crazy inserts with the jersey cards and. Uh, all these different styles, uh, it got to the point where you could search out those cards. So you would know sometimes by the placement uh, within a box. If you open the top four cards in a box, you knew what the sequencing of the cards were. You could put the packs on a scale. You could put an unopened box on a scale. And you're going to know if, uh, because, you know, you might have one super duper uh, insert per 20 count case. So you could just weigh the boxes and sell the other, uh, you could find the box that had the tough insert because it would weigh several grams different and then sell the other boxes. And uh, same thing with packs. So, it, you know, there's, it was, it, it's a real shame at how people were cheated, not only by the manufacturer, but by the dealers and the card shop owners and, um, you know, people that were just trading amongst themselves. Yeah. As, as an adult, this seems so unsurprising, right? Like to hear, oh, wow, adults doing ridiculous things to out of greed uh, and scamming other people. But like as a child, the fact that it's children, generally speaking, who are getting uh, who are getting scammed because, I, you know, the, even in this movie that I referenced earlier, uh, Jack of all trades, they talk about the 86 Dunruss Jose Canseco 
which was like the Jose Canseco card and uh, his rookie, actually prior to his rookie year, I think at 86, where he was trying to grow that mustache weekly, by the way. And it was promised, oh, you're going to find one of these and all these packs. And it was just, they, they so underproduced it. And so kids would open, you know, tens of thousands of packs and, and never get to it. Um, what about the FBI sting? What was that all about? Well, that touches a little bit on what I was saying. Uh, there was a lot of counterfeiting of cards going on. Um, and uh, we actually made a large purchase of David Robinson rookies. Uh, and uh, that was actually, I think we were like one of the first people to to uh, be hosed on counterfeiting that I remember. Uh, because really didn't hear about counterfeiting before then. But uh, so we bought, I forget how many we bought. Uh, and we're selling them. We got a great price on it. And, and some people started to point out there's something wrong with these things. So we took a magnifying glass to it and we could clearly tell there is something different about it. Uh, so uh, we were pissed off because we put a lot of money into this. We couldn't sell them because, you know, we're not going to sell counterfeit cards to people. And, we, and I actually had uh, an FBI agent that uh, was my customer and contacted him and he put us in touch. And we ended up trying to make another deal with the people because they were out of Texas. And so they flew in from Texas. We were in a hotel room uh, and it was our job to uh, wait for these guys to come up uh, and uh, show us the merchandise. And then uh, we were, we were, you know, gave the FBI the signal and then they came in and we left the room. Uh, but what was sad about it, I think it was like a $25,000 deal uh, or so. All they did is, you know, get a warning because unless you can prove that they absolutely knew what they were doing, you know, they just had to play stupid and, and nothing even came out of it. So we didn't get any money back and they didn't get convicted of anything and they just played dumb. And uh, it's just a uh, interesting story, though. Jeez. Every, so everybody was scamming everybody. So it wasn't just the, you know, the collectors getting scammed. It was the actual dealers themselves, the retailers. Like it was just everybody trying to scam uh, everybody. I don't mean to laugh, but it's just like, who knew this was even going on in the business to this day? Well, by we the way, getting, people are, yeah, go ahead. We were getting, yeah, we were getting buried by, by customers. I mean, you know, people would, tr you know, when you're talking about these older cards, they're nearly impossible to find in great to find in great condition. So what these people would do is they would trim the cards. So they, they were getting really tricky. So that you know these little frayed edges would be, you know, they would make them disappear and they would look like they're in gem mint condition. And then you'd find, oh wait a minute, this card's a little smaller than it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, they may come in and sell you try to sell you unopened boxes and. Maybe they open the packs, you know, carefully with a and, and iron them shut again after taking out the good cards. Uh, it, 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 it never it never stopped. It just never stopped. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about. And what you said, the peak of the industry was a convention in Anaheim. What year was that? I think that was the 91 uh, convention that now that was nuts because the that was at the convention center. And. Uh, a huge, huge complex, of course. There was lines going both directions around the entire building. But that was the first time I ever saw bulk inserts and bulk uh, difficult-to-find cards uh, circulating. And, uh, you know, the, the real hustlers were making big money on those uh, 
because they were coming out from the back door of a manufacturer that, that was in the area. And uh, lots of, you know, lots of, that's when the real underhandedness really started. Jeez. Uh, it goes on and on. Let's get into this, uh, this notion of what kind of sports bettors may have been produced from an obsession with cards as kids, from innocence to maybe sort of getting them in a mindset that might not have been a good thing. I don't know. We'll find out what Chris has to say about that coming up on a numbers game right here at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. Surreal times indeed, uh, like living in a sci-fi movie, what we're going through these days. Uh, and I know you missed some action. I get it. Quick Picks here to help. It's our little corner of the world, but Quick Picks is hooking us up. You could take a side in an age-old argument. Who was better in their prime? For instance... Was it Kevin Durant in his MVP season in 2013-14 or James Harden when he won it in 2017-18? The new Quick Picks Classic offers matchups of NBA stars based on their historical game stats. And with Quick Picks Classic, you can play these matchups and win money on them too. Select your first ticket for as little as 10 cents. And in an exclusive offer for recent customers, try Quick Picks Classic today and get a 100% deposit bonus. Quick Picks Classic available to play in 28 states now, including New York. For all the details, go to quickpicks.com slash bonus. That's quickpicks.com slash bonus. Gil Alexander on a numbers game here at VEASAN, the Sports Betting Network, uh, with Las Vegas Chris, who saw it all in the baseball card industry back in the day. Uh, before we get into the thing about what kind of sports bettors the industry might have produced, uh, Chris Felica, who's on the show tomorrow, by the way, Caesars, putting out 130 college football season win totals today. Chris, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I can't wait to talk about them. And at the same time, I'm like, I don't even know if this stuff's going to get played. It's hard for me to, to make bets when I'm not sure if the thing's even going to get going. I don't know how you feel about these kinds of subjects, but we'll, we'll bat it around for sure. Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to put any time into something like that because it's going to be lucky to have a season, number one. And if they do, you would think that they may have to abbreviate it. So that, you know, throws futures out the window. Well, we'll talk about it because I know uh, people people want to hear Chris's opinion on that. Chris, because obviously no one knows college football better than uh, the Bear. Chris actually chimes in on on what we're talking about today on Twitter uh, at Beating the Book. He said, "I got one," meaning he got a 1989 upper deck rookie uh, Ken Griffey at a 7-Eleven on Mill Lane in West Hampton, <laughs> but it had a factory crease in the upper corner, and he was devastated devastated. And this gets back to it. I, I didn't, I really glossed over this earlier, Chris, and you mentioned this to me uh, off air that we should probably touch on this again, which is when we were kids, all right, a crease, what, what Felica got on his upper deck, we he saw a crease. He's like, oh man, I know this is, this card's not worth uh, what it could have been, obviously, because it's something as obvious as a crease. But the difference for us between very good and maybe even more so between excellent and what we thought was mint, we were just doing it by our eyes, right? And so we were like, well, you know, we could, we just sort of traded on an honor system with conditioning. But that whole grading of cards based on condition, long after we or people of my generation and our generation were collecting cards, that became this massive thing too. Was that a scam also? Well, when I when I first started uh, branching out with relationships, I I, I uh, 
made a lot of people that were in the coin industry as friends. And they said what really ruined the coin industry was when grading started to happen. And, and it just completely brought that industry almost to a halt because of the reason you just spoke of. There was no interpretation of quality anymore. Um, you know, getting back to the guy that's talking about old football cards and, or baseball cards, people would bring in cards from the 50s and the 60s and Gee, they're 40 years old. They look great, but they are not perfect. So for being 40 and 50 years old, you think, oh, my God, I've got something. But right. you don't. It has to look like it just came out of a pack. And then even if you had the four sharpest corners around, it might be off-centered. Maybe the, the, the cut on the sheet was just a little bit off, or there's a printer's dot. Or there's just some tiny imperfection. So when grading started to happen with cards, you know, that didn't help either, uh, except the people that were really uh, just, you know, t- you know, sending the stuff out for grading. And then if they don't get the cards graded, they just break the plastic and, and they try to get them regraded again. And uh, um, those guys were doing okay. But, uh, you know, when you took out the fat, you know, the, the negotiation and the, and the, 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 the guesswork out of what condition it is and you didn't, right. and, 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 and it was, it was just automatically predetermined. Um, you know, it, it really changed the industry a lot because you didn't have as much, uh, buying and selling anymore. So what about this notion? Because you and I, listen, we probably only think of our baseball cards once or twice a year now at this point in our lives. We're sports bettors. That's all we care about 24-7 when we're not with our family necessarily. Sometimes even when we're with our family, that's all we care about. Um, It's kind of in our DNA. But um, you raised a notion that I hadn't really thought about, but it was, you know, I made the relationship between baseball cards and sports betting as it was sort of our first entree into what's the value of something? What's the value of something sports related based on a market? Um, so that was the connection I made. You even took it one step further, which is the kind of sports better it might've made. If you could talk about both of those things, first of all, the, the market similarities, and then, uh, that latter point. Well, it's really interesting how many similarities of the evolution of somebody that collected anything and the sports better from, you know, not knowing a thing going in, the learning curves, then, you know, wanting to be a pro at it and, and, and trying to be, you know, you know, you know, you, you know, if you're betting sports, uh, you want to be a handicapper. Uh, you want to be a pro. If you coll- if you're a collector, you want to open up a store. But what, what I didn't kind of really uh, think about before today is there was a thing called Sportsnet for the card industry. And that was, uh, that was another interesting thing uh, because you couldn't just get on Sportsnet. You had to have uh, qualifications. You had to be, go through an approval process. So the people that had access to Sportsnet had an advantage over other people. And uh, they traded everything from unopened cards to uh, every collectible you can imagine to uh, um, single cards uh, to uh, lots of cards and such and and then we have our don best uh, line service and such which you know is uh, uh you know that's listing the lines we have to deal with and, and the hilarity of it is in our in the betting industry uh 
you know, people will give you games that you can bet, but you got to do it off screen. You can't hit the screen. And, and the trading card industry was the same way. Hey, I'm going to sell you a bunch of this, a uh, bunch of these inserts, or I'm going to sell you a bunch of these unopened cases, but it can't hit the screen. So I was thinking about today and thinking about how hilarious that was. Uh, very similar in that vein. And then they both, you know, both, you know, the screen, uh, you know, obviously narrows the market. Uh, the more people that have access to it, and uh, it narrows the range. And I, you know, in betting, you don't have those wide variances in lines like you used to have. And much of that stuff you're talking about, or maybe all of that stuff, was just available from the retailer side, right? The collector never was aware of any of that. Where we, we just had our Beckett price guide. Well, um, the the betters all learned about Sportsnet uh, pretty quickly. They just couldn't access it, and the betters would want to, you know, let they would want to latch on to you if you if you had Sportsnet access. Uh, you know, they were cool. You know, if, if they could develop a relationship with me and I could tell them what the real market was on stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, you know, they're the king amongst their group of people. Hey, uh, I found out that this item's going for this. So, um, you know, it's the same ways in same ways in betting, you know? Yeah. It's unbelievable to, I mean, I get, like I said earlier as an adult, yeah, I guess it all makes sense. Of course, human beings doing crappy human beings, things, uh, to other humans, as a kid, you had no idea, right? Because you're so innocent. You're so. What, what kind of sports better do you think sprung out of this? That's interesting to me. Um, I, 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 I think uh, careful. I, I think you, you, you're careful about about. They, like, for example, uh, in in trading cards, they had the the pump and dumps. Uh, uh, you know, they would run they would run certain products up. Like uh, I referenced earlier, we could run products up on Sportsnet, and then, you know, supposedly quote, do a favor for people and say, Oh, well, this is going for a thousand on Sportsnet. I'll sell it to you for nine fifty. Uh, and that's what, you know, happened in, 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 you know, betting on the line services. Uh, you know, you see a line that's, that may be 10, but you know, it's not really 10 and you know, it's going to be crashing soon. Uh, you know, that's how Billy Walters did so well is just manipulating, uh, the market the same way people ma manipulated the market, uh, in trading cards. I could so not, I think agree. It, yeah, I could not agree yeah. with that. more. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, yeah. To answer your question that, you know, that was one of the things that I was able to easily grasp, uh, uh, from trading cards is the manipulation of the lines and to not necessarily touch on the lines and to kind of look at certain patterns. You've got to pay careful attention to if it was cards, who's selling, who's buying, is it real or not real? And uh, the same way with uh, betting markets, which, which book is moving these lines and uh, which books are not moving these lines. So you, you kind of, you have the instincts that kick in to, you know, that uh, tell you to pay attention to that type of stuff. There, there's so many tentacles of it. I mean, you know, I think about how people tended to value the cards they owned more than than your card. Like, in other words, they became very much in love with their cards. Some people were very nitty, didn't want to trade their cards because they overvalued them. And I think about fantasy players who do the same with their own fantasy players in leagues. I think about people who hold futures tickets in sports betting who tend to value theirs uh, sort of uh, irrationally in, in a way. I mean, there's so many different ways to parse it, but we got this kind of education 
without really knowing we were getting this education uh, as kids. And for, for many of us, again, it was what really sparked our, our minds for the first time into something like, wow, yeah, this is something I'm totally uh, interested in. I'm totally latching on to forget school. This is what I, this is all I care about. Um, We'll get back into it. Jimmy, Jimmy Vaccaro coming up on the show to talk Leonard Hagler with us, uh, by the way, as well. 33rd anniversary of that middleweight fight for the ages, at least from some people's perspectives, others not. Um, and we'll get into some more uh, baseball card industry stuff with Las Vegas Chris. What's the only manufacturer that's even allowed to produce the cards these days? You may be surprised by that from what you remember. And a lot of it has to do with what we've been talking about. Coming back on a numbers game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. It's a numbers game with your host, Gil Alexander. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. It is a numbers game right here at Visa, these the Vegas stats and information network, the sports betting network. Uh, it's Gil Alexander. Did I mention that? Sirius XM channel 204, Visa.com, Visa app, uh, Fubo, Game Plus, Sling. Coming up later on the show, Jimmy Vaccaro join us. Uh, tomorrow, Chris Felica to talk about college football season win totals. They're putting them out at Caesars Day, a whole bunch of them, 130 uh, to be exact, I believe is the number. Uh, so we'll talk to uh, Chris about that tomorrow on the show. Um, we're talking baseball cards and the industry, the rise and fall of the industry uh, with Las Vegas, Chris. Uh, and I also want to get into some of your your contest thoughts, because, again, as I mentioned uh, earlier on the show to start it, uh, you've won multiple Las Vegas handicapping contests, including uh, the 2016 college football station, last man standing, uh, contest win eliminator for a hundred thousand dollars back in the day, the palms contest in 2011. Uh, and you come close to winning so many others, uh, including circa this past year, 20th and 31st with your two entries. Uh, you had four of the remaining of the, of the last remaining, uh, standing 20, um, ones for college football at stations, this past year was it college football or pro football that you had four of the remaining 20 of the last 20. That was a bummer because that was four and that had a big, uh, nice payday to it. Uh, nine, you know, I think it was 150 K, but that, I was very lucky to, to lose all four, uh, that particular week because it was for some reason, these people did not drop out afterwards. So it would have been a hedging nightmare. And uh, I, could you explain that to out. people, Chris? Yeah, because because I think uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but because I think that's something that most amateur betters don't get. Well, I, I've learned something. I learned something from this year also about it. Uh, uh, you know, if you've got you know if you've got 20 people left and the prize is 150 thousand dollars, you know you don't have 25 dollars into that entry anymore. You 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 have implied. Uh, you know, uh, value versus the 150 K. So traditionally you could expect around 50% of the people to be knocked out every week. And after we dropped, that didn't happen. They had weeks where, uh, nobody lost and, uh, one person lost two people lost. And so if we had continued, I think we would have really been in hot water, uh, with, having too much money on the hedge losses if we didn't middle anything along the way. So it was actually a, you know, uh, a relief that we had been popped when we, when we popped out when we did. 
Yeah, akin to, I'm just trying to put it in terms that more people would understand, akin to, I don't know if you have an NCAA tournament and let's say you have a futures bet on it on a team. Uh, if you hedge too early, I guess is is the, the similarity in that. It's kind of counterintuitive. But if you hedge too early in that situation, well, you're going to remove all your equity if they, you know, if you're, if you're, oh, I'm doing the Sweet 16 and the Final Eight and the Final Four and that kind of thing. And what you're saying is essentially with that contest continuing on, you would have been in essence ended up in the same situation where you just keep, have to keep hedging along. It's not exactly the, but for some reason people understand the, uh, the March madness scenario, but they don't understand it for, for a contest like that. But that's why it's good for you to have been eliminated when you were, because you didn't get into that nightmare of that. And you might've even, who knows, lost money in that situation. You probably wouldn't have, but you would have certainly not won a damn thing. So that that's pretty interesting with that. Who did you lose with? Do you remember Chris? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, uh, I know that they were close, but uh, I, I can't remember. I, let me, let me, I, let me ask you this with, with uh, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish the thought. I'm sorry. I mean, the only thing I remember is the year before we we, we lost by a half a point uh, to get knocked out when we were down to three people. So um, oh, that was disappointing. That was that Dallas Washington Thanksgiving game where they botched the extra point. So, but I usually try not to remember any bad beat stories. It's just not worth it. Oh man, that is sad. It isn't worth it, right? There's no point in stewing over it. Uh, it's Gil Alexander. It's Las Vegas, Chris. It is a numbers game right here at VEASAN, the sports betting network, uh, where sports betting analytics live typically, but not like, uh, not like a day to day where we're talking baseball cards, uh, primarily the rise and fall of the industry. Um, but I do want to, I, I did want to talk about this, this betting side of thing, uh, because you have such a pedigree in it. And one of the questions for you would be, and, and it's in some ways an unfair question because we don't know the answer to it. But do you wonder, I mean, look, this is a time in our lives, Chris, where none of us could have ever anticipated the state that we're in. We're all sort of in our, you know, we're, we're quarantined in our own little corners of the world. Um, and we don't know when we're going to come out of this. We don't know when sports is going to return. And when I had Mike Palm on the show, I think it was a couple weeks back now on uh, on a numbers game here at VEASAN, he obviously is Derek Stevens' conciliary over there at Circa. And I asked him, I was like, look, have you guys thought about the impact this is going to have on your contests? And I'm not so sure he had deeply at that time because we were still two weeks ago then. And Lord knows the world is changing so quickly. We, we forget where we even were, you know, in, in, mentally speaking, uh, two weeks ago. But do you do you wonder if we're I mean, one, let's say there's first of all, I don't know if there's going to be college football. That's the one I'm really because they're kids. And I just don't know if you're going to have that season because we forget that they're students first, followed by being athletes. Um, don't uh, Obviously, I don't want to get into that debate. You know what I mean. They have to congregate as students. But uh, pro football, let's say it happens. Let's say it happens in some truncated form. I mean, I would imagine these contests, the rules will have to be altered. I know uh, over at, uh, you know, some of the bylaws have stipulations on, on uh, the necessary number of weeks. I know the Westgate has to have 10 weeks played. Uh, for it to be uh, an actual contest. But do you wonder, people with their discretionary income, the thought that these contests may happen in some form, and even if they do, 
like the pots will be much smaller. Like, I mean, what, what is your thinking on that? Do you think this year just might be a year that just goes by the wayside as far as contests? Cause I know you really spend most of your betting life on those. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that there is, there's going to be a, a fair amount of people that are less enthusiastic, uh, you know, you're going to have a fair amount of people there that are going to appreciate this break from gambling and, and tell themselves, oh, you know what? My life isn't bad. Uh, you know, I found different hobbies and, and, and I'm not blowing a bunch of money and uh, I've, I found alternatives. And then you're also going to have these people that are, you know, uh, like betting Freddie from the Flintstones that are going to be, oh, my God, it's back. And, and they're going to want to bet on everything. And, and maybe they're going to get uh, careless and uh, not be disciplined. So, you know, I, you know, a word of caution to those people is, you know, ease your way in uh, is one thing to avoid. But, I, you know, I don't know why people really chase those huge giant paydays. Yeah, they're nice. But uh, the more people there are, the harder it is to win. So uh, fewer people actually may be more desirable for uh, uh, you know, many people that would like to get into contests. Uh, some people may just feel overwhelmed. Well, I can't be 3,000 people. I can't be 2,000 people. So uh, I think it's going to go both ways, really. So, I mean, as a guy who's won multiple handicapping championships, then what don't you play? So are you, are you indicating that you don't even bother with for instance, super contest classic, which has the most entries, I think of all of these contests, like you don't touch that. No, I, I stopped playing that years ago because I, I don't think you can, you can defeat the, the variance. You know, if, if you have a true talent, um, then you're never going to, uh, get to those high numbers that put you at the very top. It's, it's why, you, you know, you, you always, it seems like you always have unknowns that win these things because anybody, you know, by randomness can have a great year. But if you have, you know, true and tried systems, uh, you know, there's formulas uh, that dictate that you're never going to have a year that's really that high over that number of games. Uh, I, I forget who did it, but there was some, you know, I personally think that 50% of the games are, are, are a, a coin flip anyway. They don't match the statistics uh, that, uh, that you handicap the game on. And then you're dealing with the remaining 50% and you're just hoping to hit 65, 75% of those remaining uh, games that aren't going to be just dumb luck by referee calls and bad bounces. Uh, can we take a can we take a question from Twitter, if you would, about baseball cards? Can we segue back there for a second? Uh, because sure. I think uh, some people will think of things that I did not. Buddy Arthur, can you please ask the card guy? That's you, Chris. You're now the card guy. Uh, can you please ask the card guy about the frenzies created by error cards back in the day? Uh, remember those? Uh, those were always an interesting sort of side thing, too. Please tell me those weren't a hustle. Like Billy Ripken's error card uh, comes yeah, to mind. Yeah, there other. Yeah, those were all hustles. Obviously, the Billy Ripken was the first uh, notable card uh, because it had an obscenity written on the bottom of the baseball bat, and uh, uh, I think that those cards went up to like two two hundred and fifty dollars, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course. Uh, a bunch of them ended up appearing later on, and I'm sure that that uh, error card is uh, 
worth about the paper it's printed on today. But the other manufacturers, and I do know this for a fact because I was told by certain people, you know, were intentionally making errors. And uh, they, would, uh, they would put in some oddities uh, throughout their sets intentionally hoping that they could benefit from that craze. So yet another, uh, you know, if it can be exploited, it will be exploited. Yeah, I, m- I mentioned earlier, and we're talking to Las Vegas, Chris, uh, here on a numbers game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. I-, I-, I mentioned earlier that the, you know, look, the Upper Deck Griffey card, which was really what caused this amazing boom in the industry, was actually it's the beginning of its undoing because there are there are stories that once the card was, uh, you know, so speculative that it was, I don't know, $400 in value or whatever it was valued at at its peak, um, that there were stories of folks finding a guy uh, with a box of 5,000 of just Ken Griffey rookies in his box ready to sell. That upper deck had essentially um, manufactured, not essentially, but actually had manufactured so many of these mass-produced. Now, remember, that was an 89 Ken Griffey upper deck card, his rookie card. They had manufactured a whole bunch, and the way that you knew that it was a scam is that it was on 1990 paper stock and and beyond. So they had basically taken this amazing gem and realized, oh, we could mass produce this is like printing money, and in subsequent years uh, made so many of these. And I guess it comes down to the question, you wonder, okay, were people prosecuted? Like, did people go to jail? That kind of thing. And it really was... You know, it's a question of legality versus ethics, right, in the end. Legally, no one did anything really to break a law, at least nothing that anybody didn't, you know, felt the need to pursue in a court of law. Really, legally, you were not on solid ground with that. Ethically, of course, uh, it it was just awful, right? I mean, it goes against all ethical, because as we said, all ethical... uh, boundaries because everything was everybody was scamming everybody and it's just it's amazing to think about that you you said and we'll get back to the question before about uh star cards in packs i guess my question to you then chris personally is how much of this did you know at the time in other words you you came to learn all of it as you progressed but i guess what i'm asking is did you ever feel, and this sort of gets to how you got out of the industry, what were what were the points where you're like, I don't feel right doing this? Or did you do it wrong for a period of time? And then you were like, and then you sort of one day you woke up and like, wait, I don't want to be this person. Like, how did that go for you? Well, you know, there was an honest way to do business. Uh, so you, you, there were, there are plenty of reputable dealers uh, and a lot of them are still around. I don't know how, but you could do <laughs> honest business because, you know, you, you can't rip off your customers and, uh, you know, expect them to come back. So you can't sell, you know, packs of cards that don't have those inserts in them. You can't, uh, uh, you can't be selling, you know, misrepresenting quality or, or, or certain other issues about what you're selling because you need that customer to keep on coming. You know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, they're in, Every month for that Beckett, uh, they're, they're waiting for the UPS driver, and there's a line of people. Look, uh, uh, you know, it's it's like the lottery. So there was a way to do it honestly. What what really hurt the industry, though, 
is we had horrible terms. It was it's 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 humiliating to even admit this, but any normal industry would have will give you terms. You apply for credit, you get terms, uh, you get a chance to sell the product, uh, and that's the way a normal industry is. In the card industry, the manufacturers were so short on dough because of their licensing fees, they had you prepay. So all the dealers had to prepay. There was very few people that didn't have to prepay a manufacturer. Uh, so, and you might prepay two, three months ahead of time. And by the time, you know, and if you, you're full service and you're carrying full product lines, you've got, you know, $100,000 out of your pocket for stuff you can't even sell. And, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then what happened when, when people, you know, when dealers started to get financially stressed, uh, there'd be times where, on the sports net, the product would be worth 10, 20% less than what you paid for it because people, dealers needed to pay rent. They had to sell some of the product they, they had guaranteed to come in later. So they'd sell it at a discount just to get their money back. So uh, that's what really hurt it for the stores. There, there, there was just no manufacturer support uh, in any way to, whatsoever. Uh, today, Upper Deck, for instance, just to let people know, Upper Deck no longer has a license to produce baseball cards. Uh, they just do hockey cards. No longer has a license to produce baseball cards. And Tops, who, remember, owned the baseball card industry from the early 50s all the way to the late 80s, they're the only company that produces baseball cards today. So all of these other companies, Upper Deck and Score and Donruss and Fleer and on down the line, they're done. Uh, they don't they don't exist in this in this industry. And it's just uh, it's fascinating. And you wonder if and I mean, again, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. I, I just wonder if 30, 40 years from now, this will all be cyclical again. Who knows? Uh, you mentioned in, a, in an email to me or, or in a text to me, uh, Chris, um, manufacturers and dealers themselves, the unscrupulous behaviors, backdoor products, reprinting, counterfeiting, which we talked about in your, your sting with the FBI, uh, the, method, the methods that dealers robbed customers with uh, being able to sell products they knew had no star cards. Did we miss anything? Was there something else that we hadn't touched on yet? Because uh, it, it just scams every which way. Well, you know, it's, it, it, it mirrors uh, our industry. You've had dealers and manufacturers uh, you know, go out of business. Uh, um, one of the biggest dealers uh, was based here in Las Vegas, uh, a place called Smokies. They went and actually started manufacturing their own hockey set. And uh, uh, long story short, uh, you know, they weren't around very long. And, and, I, and I, I think people uh, uh, lost a lot of money pre-buying product that was never delivered. Uh, in fact, I had to go to court on that because I pre-sold some some product and it was never delivered. It was never made. And and somebody that I pre-sold uh, to sued me. So, uh, you know, you, you, you know, it's it just like you, you've got bad, you know, bad offshores. Uh, you, you had bad dealers and you had uh, bad, you know, situations uh, that you could get into the same way. Yeah, there's a there's a place in Burbank, I believe it is, which has the largest collection, largest full sets and largest collection warehouse of baseball cards. And I think that's a that's a field trip one day for me. I'd love I'd love to see this. This is from Scott Hoffman on Twitter. We get tweets uh, at beating the book. 
uh, at Hoffy time. How does Chris feel about the current state of the card industry now? Does he still collect or invest? Or are you just completely out and disinterested, Chris, after all this? I'm, I've been completely out and disinterested, but I, I bounced into a few people that uh, uh, they're, they're, they're still in it. Uh, but what they're focusing on is PSA graded. So they're buying, uh, you know, things that are numbered, things uh, that are limited production and only the highest quality. Uh, uh, and, I, and I have to agree with that. If, if I were to pop back in, I would only want the rare items, the highest quality, and I would want to know that it's real. Uh, you know, we haven't even touched on this. Uh, not that I was involved in it too much, but you know, there was a story that 95% of all the Michael Jordan uh, signed items were counterfeit, and and it's Jeez. probably higher. It's probably 99%. The 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 amount of fake autographs and fake jerseys and fake game worn this. You know, that was another way that uh, it really sucked money out of the industry also. Uh, people became disillusioned by that. Uh, I would have counterfeit stuff and, and fake autographs and fake letters of authenticity come in all the time. Uh, you know, you really had to, you know, uh, have your uh, wits about you. You had to have the magnifying glass you had to be familiar with. Uh, I can't tell you how many signed Babe Ruth baseballs came into my store. I mean, geez. Stop it. Come on. <laughs> Come on, you no, had to, but they, you were, had to, they were they were counterfeit though. Yeah, of course they were. But you had to know that, right? You had to question that at the time, even. Oh, but you know what? Let me tell you something. You can see some of these. You know, they. You know, sometimes they could take a, a ball from that era that might have been signed by other Yankees or it, just a, a ball from that era. And 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 so you know, if you carbon dated it, would be from the era. Uh, and you can fade ink and sunlight. There's ways to fade ink. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of creative ways of counterfeiting signatures uh, and memorabilia. It, it's it's unbelievable. It, by Jeez. temperatures, by lighting, um, you know, by trimming, um, by adding or subtracting something to it. Okay. Uh, like I said, all not surprising as an adult. But a little part of me dies with every word that you say. Uh, we'll come back. We'll wrap it up with Chris. Jimmy Vaccaro on the way right here on a numbers game. Oh, and a golf update right here at VEASAN. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Uh, Jason Sobel tweeting out some golf updates, uh, majors and other notable events. Uh, the United States Open golf tournament uh, rescheduled for September 17th to the 20th. That is the working date now for the U.S. Open. Uh, they're at Winged Foot. It will be at Winged Foot in New York. So the new dates for the U.S. Open, September 17th to the 20th. The Open Championship, that remains canceled, which we uh, once uh, did, uh, would call the British Open. The Open Championship, that remains canceled. The PGA uh, is now rescheduled for August 6th to 9th. That was the one at Harding Park here in San Francisco, where I'm broadcasting from. That uh, is now rescheduled for August 6th to 9th. So PGA August 6th to 9th, U.S. Open September 17th to 20th. As far as the Ryder Cup, that remains uh, at the end of September, September 25th to the 27th. And if you're wondering about the Masters, the dates that they're thinking about per Jason Sobel, November 12th through the 15th, you imagine. Uh, so Augusta National, which closes down over the summer, we're, of course, used to seeing the azaleas in full bloom uh, at the beginning of April. 
tentative dates for this year's Masters, November 12th to the 15th. By the way, um, FedEx playoffs pushed back one week as well. That according to uh, Jason Sobel again. So PGA August 6th to 9th, U.S. Open September 17th to 20th, Ryder Cup September 25th to 27th, the Masters just before Thanksgiving, November 12th to the 15th, if, in fact, all of that happens. And this is as best as they can come up with a schedule here uh, in early April. Um, Chris, Las Vegas, Chris still with us. You want to take some uh, tweets here? Because I got some questions uh, for sure. you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Gary Kincaid, where can we go to find a reputable baseball card evaluator with this new grading system? Um, well, you, you had, uh, you've got several grading services. I think, you know, PSA was, uh, the number one, uh, service that I'm familiar with. Uh, uh, but I think a simple Google search will do that. Uh, David Foreman, great show today on the baseball card industry, Gil, although it's making me realize that 10-year-old me was caught holding the bags on these things. We all were, man. 10-year-old, all of us were. Uh, all them lawns mowed and sidewalks shoveled just to be hustled into thinking cards had value. Uh, so true. Uh, Brock Marshall, going down memory lane here, this was my time. The Billy Ripken, Canseco-rated rookie, upper deck, all of it. Uh, what was it you wanted to say off-air? You mentioned something, Chris, that from a, the previous question in the previous segment, um, something related to sports betting again about the notion of finding smaller markets in sports betting. Could you get into that a little? Yeah, well, I wanted to, Scott, Scott Hoffman was asking, you know, you know, what would I do now? I, I would also equate that to betting also is bet or collect what you like. Uh, don't, uh, don't, uh, you know, just be careful. So if I was, if I was collecting now, I would want to do it in stuff that I'm really interested in, not solely for the purpose of it's going to be worth more later. But, uh, you know, another correlation of how baseball cards and collecting went is the same as betting. You, you had to get to a point where you needed to diversify uh, the way that, uh, you know, we're starting to bet smaller market sports uh, to find value. That's what you had to do with trading cards. And you, you move to the basketball, you move to the football, and, and then you're sitting there and you're going to wonder bread cards and you're going to entertainment cards and uh, um, like the star basketball, which was a, a, you know, a bag set that didn't come out in packs. Um, I've, I've got these Olympic cards that I had a, you know, a bunch of these Olympic cards that, uh, are, are pretty rare. Um, so you have to do the same thing, uh, because that you did there with sports to find the real value, because it doesn't matter what the market is. There's, there's the value is going to be lost and, 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 and all the information is consolidated. So you, you, if you're smart and you find these little, small, little niches, uh, of value, uh, I think you'll benefit more. You're not betting table tennis or uh, soccer in Belarus, are you, Chris? I'm not, but I did see that, uh, what was it, 10, 9 or 10 uh, pong, par pong parlay that won. <laughs> yeah. No, I was mentioning the other day that, listen, people who, people who think uh, these offshores are in trouble, at least the reputable ones, uh, uh, reports of their demise are greatly exaggerated, as I was mentioning uh uh, you know, 30K in the handle on some of these Madden simulations. I'm sure it's higher than that uh, these days um, than it was even five days ago. And, and maybe even more predictive than actual football. That's a whole nother matter. 
We can get into that another day. More with Las Vegas, Chris, Jimmy Vaccaro uh, on the way as we wrap things up. The baseball card industry, the rise and fall. We were all scammed, all of us, right here on a numbers game at VEASAN, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. Support for A Numbers Game comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family, Jules. April, by the way, is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. Learn more about testicular cancer screening at manscaped.com slash we hyphen save hyphen balls and share their educational video to help save lives and balls. Uh, you can also get 20% off plus free shipping with the code VSIN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off at manscaped.com with promo code VSIN. And yes, I will read this at the end too. Your balls will thank you. Chris, whatever they're paying me, it's not enough. Well, that reminds me in fourth grade, I was suspended for bringing a t-shirt that said, tennis players have fuzzy balls. <laughs> Is that true? Is that your story? Really? That's a true story. I true story. I, I thought it was hilarious at the time, and uh, I could Wait, not believe. Wait, they suspended believe. you when you were in fourth grade. They, what? Are you, yeah, they sent me home. Can't wear that shirt. Oh, well, they sent you home. Okay, I thought they like issued a formal suspension where they were like telling uh, how old are you? And like nine years old. They're like, I'm sorry, you've been suspended for two weeks or something like that. They just sent you home that day. Some hot water. Um, I was, uh, this has nothing to do with, uh, wearing a t-shirt that says the word balls on it. Uh, I was kicked out of the Washington DC chapter of my Hebrew school and sent to Potomac, Maryland, because, uh, I knew more Hebrew than the teachers and would tell the kids, the other kids, what the teachers were saying to each other. How about that? How about that, Chris? How about that? for some Nobody likes brand? to know it all, Gil. Nobody, <laughs> nobody <laughs> likes to know it all in any language. They certainly... They certainly were not happy with me over at Hebrew school at DC. Um, how about the masters? Did you catch that last, last segment? I, I didn't really get your reaction on that. How about the notion of the masters being played in November? Wow. No, why not? When does it really, why does it really matter when it's played? Well, it doesn't. I mean, apparently that course is fine. Again, they close Augusta in the summertime we we know it for all its beauty in spring, but apparently it's very nice at that time of year, late in the year as well. The, I mean, the grass is different for sure, and and the look will be will be somewhat different. Golf is the one sport that during this pandemic, you really did hope that golf, because there's the distancing that's inherent in it, but it is about the travel and getting the players there, and and so I do understand that part of it. That's why they they had to uh, suspend the tournaments, but they're they're at least going to try to give a go at this later in the uh, later in the year. Um, but just ra- wrapping up everything and thanks to everybody for tweeting at beating the book it seems to have resonated with, uh, with a whole bunch of people. And, and I knew it would because so many of us grew up, um, you know, as sports betters first, really speculating in the baseball card industry and learning about the value of collectibles or what we thought the valuable of collectibles, uh, the value of collectibles were at that time. And it's really our first correlation between sports and money. And, and I do agree with what you said earlier, and I think these are the, the, the macro points, that it really did, I think, create a certain education for those of us who ended up being sports betters to learn the proper value of things, to learn that some things weren't what they were perceived as, that other people had different value on items than you might have. And I get back to the very original point we made. We often think about this 
the baseball card industry is this quaint slice of Americana where fathers and sons would bond over a shared love of baseball and a shared love of collecting cards. When in fact, it's a shout out to the moms of the world from the generation before ours. Those were the moms who threw out all their cards. Danny Burke, who's, uh, who's uh, in studio on a numbers game. We didn't get to hear much from Danny today. Uh, but Danny was talking about how his, uh, in his family, there was an instance of that as well, where someone threw out baseball cards. It was that kind of uh, thing that created this market of value when we were kids. And it's that very, it's the very opposite of that that ended up ruining the market, if you will, with mass production um, and the notion that 30 years hence, our cards would be just as valuable as they were at the time in the 80s and 90s, but we just didn't get that that's what created the market and they were doing the exact opposite through scams and all kinds of shenanigans uh, when we were kids. You were mentioning as sort of your macro statement over the whole thing about collectibles in general and, and how it should teach us about markets, Chris, off air. Well, getting back to the moms, they, karma got them back with Beanie Babies. The, they were the most dysfunctional <laughs> group of collectors no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. They are worse yeah, than any gambleaholic. They are, yeah, they are worse than any drug dealer, uh, drug user, gambleaholic. Uh, uh, you name it. The Beanie Baby collectors, bar none, are the most dysfunctional people uh, ever, 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 ever. The, the moms themselves. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was normal people, but. Uh, you know, collectibles in general are just, you know, it's like a game of hot potato. I mean, everything that we buy in life, you know, stocks, metals, houses, uh, cars, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, you know, the, the price guides mean nothing. Nothing is worth, worth uh, what it says in a price guide. It's only worth what somebody's willing to pay you at that moment in time. And that's what collectors fail to, to remember. And uh, there was a time period, uh, getting back to Beckett, I had a standing policy. I'm selling at, I'm buying at 10% of high Beckett and I'm sell, and I'm selling at 25% of high Beckett. Uh, you know, I would have showcases fill, filled with stuff. Uh, it wouldn't be everything in the store, but that was my general policy. You can buy at 25% of the price and you can, if you want to sell it to me, I'm buying it at 10% because that, that was the, the range that I found the most uh, give and take on. But uh, the people fool themselves into the looking at price guides or 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 eBay. Oh, I saw this go on eBay for this much. It's all BS. You know how many fake sales there are, and how many people are oh, yeah. buying their own products and having friends oh. buy it. It's it, just to prop things up, and uh, it, it's the same way they did it with betting lines, where they're trying to prop up uh, games throughout the week just so that they can uh, pound it back down right before game town. Were the Beanie Baby moms like pushing, each, shoving each other out of the way? Like, what were they about? Were they worse than the Cabbage Patch moms? Oh yeah, it, seriously. I mean, it's it, just ridiculous. It, it, it was unbelievable. It, it, the lines <laughs> and the passion, Phenomenal. and and yeah. and I would I would I would run ads in the paper. Don't buy these. These are really overpriced. But I I have them. I'm the first person in the state. You can see the twelve new Beanie Babies, and then they'd be absurdly <laughs> overpriced, and they'd be gone. They'd be gone. So they, these people actually Incredible. thought they. I can't. T- can't tell you how many times moms would honestly say it's going to help out my my child's college fund. And I, and I would tell them, please don't do that. 
we'll we'll end on that note. Human beings, irrational then, irrational now. Chris, appreciate it so much, man. Thank you so much. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.